Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Matt Gates says he misses Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We have such an interesting show for you today. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy talks to us about the bill he spent three months negotiating, which Mike Johnson declared dead on arrival without reading. Then we'll talk to the Daily Beast's Matt Fuller about the chaos in the House under Speaker Maga Mike Johnson. But first, we have Slate Senior Editor, the author of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, Dahlia Lithwick. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Dahlia. Hello, friend. What fun it is <laughs> to ride through the one-court open sleigh. Hi. <laughs> so so we both listened to this incredibly, I don't know, sort of, I mean, you are the expert here. I was surprised at how little any of the justices were buying today. Well, they were buying very little that Jonathan Mitchell was selling on the Trump side until it became clear they were buying even less of what Jason Murray was (laughs) selling. So listening to the first half, I was like, wow, Mitchell is conceding every point he doesn't need to concede and he's giving away the farm and what's he doing? And then after Murray sat down, I was like, oh, well, somehow (laughs) Mitchell has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. It was really strange. I mean, you know, you listen to a lot more Supreme Court arguments than I do, but I was gobsmacked by how it seemed like Trump's lawyer was not a very good lawyer and kind of fighting with the justices a little bit. But then the justices were, even the liberal justices, were not having anything from what the Colorado Solicitor General or any of that crew were trying to sell. I think that the play here that Jonathan Mitchell, let's remember that guy is the architect of SB8, right? You remember the vigilante bill in Texas that overturned Roe even before Roe was overturned. So I think what he did and his brief was very weird and it focused on this officer thing, right? It was like, we're not going to make our strongest argument, which came up a couple times today, which is maybe, you know, a five-day trial in Colorado shouldn't be like the baseline that everyone has to agree proved he insurrected. And that was a strong argument. The 
dissenters on the Colorado Supreme Court were fussed about that. But that isn't the issue Jonathan Mitchell presses. What he presses is this officer thing, right? Trump isn't contemplated as an officer under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. What's kind of interesting is that that was an elegant out for the court to decide this case on a really technical, you know, originalist text and meaning. They could have just had this arcane kind of Bruin Dobbs style, let's just like parse the text. What was weird, and I think what you're reacting to, is the degree to which a court that was given the opportunity to do that and loves to do that, instead just dove in head first on the pragmatic, political, how is this going to affect people? Argument, And so the whole second half of the argument was stuff like the chief justice complaining that what he called the plain consequences, right, that states are going to disqualify Democrats and then others are going to disqualify Trump and it's going to be this patchwork. And, you know, uh, Elena Kagan at one point said, I'm just going to ask this bold question. Why should a single state get to decide who gets to be president of the U.S.? So there's a way in which... Given the like gift of deciding this in a really court-ish way, they kind of just decided it in the manner of nine people who are super worried about looking dumb. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh because it was really depressing. And it seemed as if like the liberal justices were, I mean, with the exception of Sotomayor, who seemed actually quite infuriated, I thought at times. The rest of them seemed sort of on board with this idea that they were just not going to touch it. Yeah. I mean, I think Justice Kagan made it really plain that she did not want to be part of unloosing kind of a, a disaster on the nation. And I think Katanji Brown Jackson was all in on this officer officer question and essentially said, She's like, crazy. if I do straight up originalist reading, I don't think that the drafters of the 14th Amendment meant to include, you know, the president and the vice president. I think they were going after, you know, lesser officers, Confederate officers who were infiltrating state legislatures. She basically conceded to the argument, which, by the way, I think is just kind of a bad argument, but it was the argument that the the Trump folks hung the entire thing on. So I think you're going to get, I almost want to say unanimous, I agree with you that I think Sotomayor hated this whole thing and she hated that essentially this was giving a get out of jail free card to presidents who foment insurrections who've never held another office before. But I think otherwise you're going to get six, seven, eight votes either for this officer officer thing or for this, you know, we can't have a lack of uniformity and therefore we need an enabling statute from Congress. But it was not liberal conservative. I think it was just, I don't want to touch this hot potato. How about you? I hate it to move on. That's what it was. But it's so interesting because the officer officer thing is so fucking stupid. And also, <laughs> like the whole idea that the 14th Amendment is somehow that that would mean that they could have elected Jefferson Davis. Right. And the idea that they would be like, OK, we're not going to let anybody who was a former Confederate or, you know, who aided and abetted or enabled an insurrection, you know, have high office except the president and the vice president. <laughs> that would be OK. It defies logic. You can read the historian's briefs about about this on my podcast last week, I had an amazing historian who just debunked the crap out of these arguments. But I think right. maybe your point is, and it's correct, I think when it, the rubber hits the road, text and history isn't the whole shooting match. It never was. And the fact that Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's attorney, just conceded that he was hanging his whole case on this Henry Griffin case, which is not a Supreme Court precedent and which was like later retracted by Sam and Chase, who wrote it. You know, when he's like, yeah, it's not binding. It's not precedent. It wasn't a Supreme Court decision, but it's the best thing we have. It's a terrible decision. Well, it's just a very political decision for somebody who was on the side of the Confederates. But I think maybe if we try to back out of like the catastrophe that was oral argument, maybe I want to put the best possible spin on this because 
because I have to, because it's sobbing. And I think the best possible spin is to say that on February 8th of 2024, the United States Supreme Court discovered humility, <laughs> discovered that even though it like right. wants to weigh in on what the Clean Air Act is and the Clean Water Act and vaccine policy and immigration policy and, you know, re-asking questions about FDA approval of Mifepristone, it's the expert on all things. But apparently today it learned it doesn't want to be the decider. And maybe if next week it can say, and thus we summarily affirm the D.C. Circuit opinion, finding that Trump is not immune from criminal consequences, I could be on board for the newly humble Roberts Court. How about you? Yeah, I want them to go back and put Roe back on the books. I mean, these fuckers, <laughs> you know, states don't have the right to decide except when we like what they're deciding. We can vivisect the Voting Rights Act because of the dignity of states, except for the dignity of Colorado that wants to take an insurrectionist off the ballot that's like not interesting. I think we just have to like look at this as a template of like hypocrisy. Suddenly when there's consequences for the court itself, everything goes away. I guess I would just say the other thing that is kind of interesting, I was really struck by how little we talked about the insurrection today. <laughs> I mean, it was like the biggest admission. I, I thought that was astonishing that the person who said the sentence, you know, yes, it was a riot, quote, a shameful criminal violent event came from Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's lawyer. Now, like, hold on to the fact that he called it criminal. That's kind of useful. But I think that the fact that nobody else wanted to talk about it, and in fact, we heard justices fretting about like, oh God, are we going to have to adjudicate what insurrections are going forward? Like, oh, that would be awkward. So right. the fact that I, I guess <laughs> I was really struck by the fact that the argument Colorado was making is, of course, this is a case of first impression. Of course, there's no case law. Of course, this is crazy because we don't have presidents fomenting insurrections a whole lot. Therefore, exigent need for the court to act and the court sort of responding to that with this kind of slightly cowering, oh, this is a case of first impression and we don't have any doctrine and we don't want to be the ones who decide this. And so there's a weird way in which the enormity and singularity of the events of January 6th are the thing that both demand the court to be brave and also the thing that the court is going to hide behind and say, this isn't for us to decide. It kicks us back to this idea that we have at every single point, Republicans have taken the opportunity and not even Republicans, everyone. I mean, not everyone, but largely most of our institutions have refused to hold Trump accountable at every point. The Republicans in the Senate, maybe we shouldn't be doing this, this one, that one. I mean, at every point, they really have kicked the can or been too scared to, right? Right. It's it's a huge three-dimensional game of checks and balances chicken, right? Where everybody is saying like, uh, we don't have to do it, do it through impeachment. And then the, you know, Republicans who voted not to impeach were like, we don't have to do it, do it through a criminal trial, right? Then we get to the criminal trial and Trump's lawyers are arguing you should have done it through impeachment, right? And then Merrick Garland is too slow. And then, you know, Donald Trump is gaming the appellate system to push this thing to the election. And it just, the vibe is very much that like, how did we build this entire infrastructure of checks and balances if nobody wants to check and nobody wants to balance and nobody wants to put their skin in the game? I think that what I would say, and I've been thinking about this a lot, because if I'm right and the court decides to do the kind of split the baby Solomonic thing where Colorado loses here, but Trump loses next week on immunity. And then the court will say, look at how temperate and moderate we are. And then we have to play out how soon can Jack Smith, you know, get that trial done in Judge Tanya Chutkin's court in D.C. It does raise this question of will that be enough, right? <laughs> like, is that going to be the thing that checks Donald Trump or it brings accountability. And here, Molly, is where I just get stuck on the, my God, we already had a January 6th investigation. We already had an impeachment. We already had, you know, E. Jean two times. Right. We are waiting for, it's like 
this thing keeps bonking us on the head. Like he did it. He did it. We all saw it. We all saw it. And then we're mad that the next level of accountability didn't happen. But like, I keep finding myself asking, what is going to change when either, you know, he gets thrown off the ballot, which I guess is not going to happen after today, or what is going to change when there's an actual criminal conviction at the hands of Jack Smith? Are folks going to then say, oh, he is exactly the thing he purports to be. And when he says he's interning people in camps and weaponizing the Justice Department against his enemies, maybe we should take him seriously. I think my slight answer to your question is what other thing needs to happen in right. order to persuade us to hold him to account. And that's the thing that ultimately fails is that we want this like deus ex machina, you know, like to come in a like conga line and fix it. And I'm just like, it's come, it's come, it's come. We've seen it. So why are we expecting the next thing to change people's minds? It's so crazy. <laughs> when we say the guardrails have held, what I think we mean is that they actually haven't held, right? I mean, in a certain way. I mean, this guy could be president again. He could very well be president again. And I think it's worth recalling that every single time any of these attempts to hold him to account fails, he turns around and says, look, witch hunt, witch hunt, you know, it's a conspiracy. I'm going after Hunter Biden or whatever he says. So, you know, there's a kind of a slipstream in which he monetizes this and he uses it to say, look, the system has clearly been weaponized against me and that's why I'm going to weaponize it against you. I think that the only thing we can say, I wrote a piece about this a couple of weeks ago and it made people feel pissy, but mm -hmm. I was just like, we just keep expecting one trial, one impeachment, one investigation to be the thing that saves us. And I just think we need to start to take responsibility for the fact that we're just going to have to be the thing that saves us because we're going to just have to vote the shit out of this problem. I don't know what else to say. I think that if the Supreme Court had an opportunity today to say this is precisely what the drafters of the 14th Amendment contemplated. And of course, it's shocking and scary. And of course, it's a huge political move and there are terrible risks involved. But someone's got to kind of pony up and do it. Like that wasn't what the court did today. It's not what it's going to do. So I think the question is then, and I think it's a little bit of what you're asking, like how do we pony up, right? Like what do we do in response to this? And I think it just has to be, this has to be a route. Yeah. It really sounds like I'm really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk for two more seconds about just the other. There's this immunity case that's going to come up in front of the Supreme Court, too, which is the king, you know, is Trump king or just a citizen that probably will get a different response from the Supreme Court, right? That would be if the Supreme Court cared about its Yelp ratings. Right. That's the thing it would do. It would say, OK, we completely bailed on the Colorado disqualification case, but <laughs> to pay you back, we are going to affirm the D.C. Circuit that held entirely reasonably, and I would say unassailably, that Donald Trump is not, in fact, the king of the world. So I think in the way the D.C. Circuit structured its order this earlier this week, the court has to act very quickly. And the court will likely, I think, want to act quickly because this is another urgent national election matter, right? It, it matters hugely. So the question is really, is the court going to do the same thing it did in this Colorado case, which is, you know, expedited briefing, expedited argument, decide this thing fast enough that this case could presumably, you know, go to trial on some like you know, good timeline rather than the evil timeline when it goes to trial next October. And I think that is an easier case for the court to step into because there is lots of case law, there is lots of doctrine, because the D.C. Circuit so clearly got it right. And the alternative is saying that Donald Trump could order like SEAL team to come in and execute his political rivals. So I just don't think there's a plausible argument mm -hmm. that Donald Trump could prevail even with this court. So I think that's probably the way we're going to go. And then I think we're back to your earlier question, which is, can this happen in time to affect things? And, like, that's a time-space continuum question. It's not a legal question. 
Oh, those big sighs. Mm. They reverberate in my ears for days. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for everything you do. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to black women the way we lean on our mothers our grandmothers our sisters our friends we're just each other's pulse i mean it's molecular you know listen to the bright side from hello sunshine on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Did you know Rick Wilson and I are bringing together some friends for a general election kickoff party at City Winery in New York on March 6th? We're going to be chatting right after Super Tuesday about what's going on, and it is going to probably be the one fun night for the next 80 days. If you're in the New York area, please come by and join us. You can go to City Winery's website and grab a ticket. Chris Murphy is the junior senator from the great state of Connecticut. Welcome back to Fast Politics. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) Senator Murphy, you negotiated a border deal. Yep, I did. With Lankford and Kirsten Cinema. Give us two seconds of what that was like. It's four months of my life that I'm never getting back. (laughs) A lot of time with two very complicated characters, but I love them both dearly. Yeah, I mean, listen, the Republicans appointed James Lankford to negotiate this border deal because he's a hardliner. Maybe they thought he was never going to get a deal. Maybe that was why this ended up happening the way that it happened. But 
We did get a deal. We spent four months working through every possible way to get the border under control. We found a compromise, which includes a lot of good things for immigrants and some expansions of legal pathways and also contains some real tough tools for the president to stop you know, 10,000 people from showing up every day in an unplanned way at the border. We got that deal. We released the text on Sunday night and within 24 hours, the MAGA right burned it to the ground and every single Republican that told us they were going to vote for the thing ran for the hills because they decided that they wanted the border to be chaotic and they couldn't imagine a world in which the border isn't chaotic because that's kind of like their oxygen. It's so interesting because, first of all, there has been no border legislation, right? There was a swing and a miss in 2013, right? There hasn't been anything in more than 20 years, right? Yeah, I mean, arguably 40 years. Yeah. So there's no legislation, ergo, there's no money, ergo, ICE now. You'll remember ICE as Donald Trump's favorite group of civil servants. I guess ICE is a civil servant. Sure. ICE is now, ICE wanted this deal, right? I don't think ICE had an opinion (laughs) on the bill. I know there's a lot of acronyms in this world, but the Border Patrol Union, which are the folks who are actually on the border, not the people doing the enforcement in the interior, the Border Patrol Union, which are a a super conservative group of cats who have always supported Donald Trump, endorsed this bill as did the Immigration Lawyers Association, which is a pretty progressive group of individuals who represent immigrants every single day. So this was like a true old-fashioned D.C. compromise in which some groups on the left supported it, some groups on the right supported it. Democrats were going to vote against it. Some Republicans were going to vote against it. We just didn't think that every single Republican was going to vote against it, which is essentially what happened. Mike Johnson, even before the text. So the text wasn't released until Sunday, right? Yep. 19 pages released on Sunday. The week before, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, called it dead on arrival. Yeah. And then like that night, uh, Senator Mike Lee was like, this is ridiculous. We need 72 hours to read this. And like literally three minutes later, he was like, this bill's terrible. I'm not voting for it. They were not giving this bill a serious look. They didn't sit and have a, you know, very nuanced policy focused discussion on the merits of the bill. No, they decided that they couldn't live in a world in which the border was fixed. Like, what would they do on it? They couldn't go down to the border and pretend to be border patrol agents and put on (laughs) camouflage and bring the TV cameras with them. They live for the border being a nightmare and they wanted to preserve it because that was their only path to victory in November. So I think it's a real political problem for them because I think the whole country has seen that they're not sincere about closing the border. And I think they're going to have to live with the consequences of a bad policy decision and a bad political decision. One of the, I think, important parts of the story that we we did not start on, that a lot of our listeners probably know, though, is that all of this started because MAGA World decided they would only do foreign aid if Democrats addressed the border. Correct. So in the fall, we try to pass funding for Ukraine and humanitarian assistance in Israel, and the Republicans say, no way. Even though we support that, we are not going to vote for the foreign aid we support unless you get a bipartisan deal on the border. And I ended up being the Democratic negotiator. Uh, You know, and early on, I said, are you sure you want to go down this road? You understand that any bipartisan bill that we reach is going to be opposed by Donald Trump. You're ready to go to war with Donald Trump? Really? They said, yeah, we're willing to go to war with Donald Trump. As it turns out, they weren't. We did exactly what they asked. We partnered together, border reform. We got the deal with Langford and with Senator McConnell. He was part of our negotiations. And then as soon as they had the chance to combine them both together, they said, never mind. We don't want the border stuff. Put the Ukraine bill back on the floor and we'll vote for that. And as you and I are talking today, it looks like we're headed towards passage of the Ukraine funding by itself. Uh, We could have done that back in the fall when Ukraine wasn't like losing the war on some days. So this is just Ukraine or it's Ukraine, Taiwan and Israel? Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel and humanitarian funding, significant, you know, $10 billion for Gaza. So this is not a small package. It's a big package. It's got a bunch of fentanyl funding in it. It will be very good when it passes, but we could have passed that uh, four months ago. It passes in the Senate, likely, because you need 60 votes. And it seems like there's a Susan Collins as there are people there that are not Tom Cotton, right? Yeah, there's our, we've already passed one procedural vote. 
and 14 Republicans joined all the Democrats. But you still need two more to get to 60, right? On the procedural vote, we've already reached 60. So as long as that, that group of 14 Republicans hangs with us, we'll pass it in the on final passage. What we've learned over the last week is that the Senate is almost as fucked up as the House, but not quite. Well, I don't know. It's pretty goddamn <laughs> close right now. The difference was that the Senate Republicans would occasionally break from Trump. Now they've made clear they will not, right? They used to have leadership. I mean, the Senate Republicans, you know, had a pretty strong leader, Senator McConnell. And I actually do appreciate the role Senator McConnell played in these border negotiations. He was a big part of the team. His staff was really excellent to work with. But, you know, he signed off on that border deal and he voted against it. <laughs> and he got four Republicans voted for it. So there's a real big leadership crisis in the Republican Senate caucus right now, which I don't like. I'm not rooting for it. It's bad for the country and Democrats and the Senate to have this vacuum of leadership in the Senate Republican caucus, but it, it does exist. It's real. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, here's Mitch McConnell. He has done things for Republicans. You know, keeping that Supreme Court seat open is the kind of thing. I mean, it's hard to imagine a Democrat doing that. I mean, he really did things that were so incredibly craven and organized. His reward is basically just nothing. Yeah, I listen, I, this is a longer conversation, but I do think that Mitch McConnell after January 6th is a different guy. He has been more willing to get stuff done after January 6th. I still deeply disagree with him on many, many issues, but he's not the same guy. So this will then go to the House of Representatives where Mike Johnson enjoys a, a one vote majority and failed to pass both a standalone Israel aid and his own impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. So the way the House works, it can't go to the floor because the Rules Committee is filled with MAGA. How can this possibly pass there? Yeah, a couple different ways. It could go on something called suspension of the rules, which allows him to go straight to the floor, but he's got to get, what, two thirds of the votes. That would be hard, but not possible for this package. Or second, it's got to come to the floor through something called a discharge petition, which is when a majority of the members sign a petition, they can force a bill to the floor, even if the majority leader, even if the speaker doesn't want it to come to the floor, that could be a possibility. Those are both long shots. Admittedly, you know, the state of the Johnson leadership effort is in crisis. Not a great yes. time to have a big bill like the Ukraine-Israel humanitarian bill coming over to the House. But there are a couple narrow pathways to get it done there. But and, and like, let's just like admit the stakes. You and I, you know, sometimes talk about this stuff as, as if it's all theater. It's not. This is the future of the world. If Ukraine loses this war, it literally resets the globe for the next 100 years. It basically tells big nations that they can invade neighbors and get away with it. And guess what? Russia will do more of it. China will start. And we will be in a fundamentally different place than any of us have recognized or known since World War II. Yeah, it seems like if Vladimir Putin is able to take Ukraine, it will make everything different and it will put Europe in a terrible position. It is not certain that Putin will keep going. Right. You, know, you don't want to sort of assume <laughs> dominoes right. all the time. But history does tend to repeat itself. And once a country feels that they have the green light, are we sure that we would defend NATO if we wouldn't defend Ukraine. I worry that the Republican Party would be signaling that they're just out of the business of collective defense and you would all of a sudden see a world war that would eventually get the United States dragged in, if not right at the outset. I don't, I don't mean to be hyperbolic. I just, I do think there are some real disaster scenarios if Ukraine falls and falls easily because the United States abandoned yeah. But I think about Reagan, you know, we grew up during Reagan and like the idea that this Republican Party now, I mean, even Bush, they were so into nation building. Yeah. And, and there does have to be a smart balance between overdoing it. Right. I mean, and recognizing when a clear line has been crossed here. This to me is a clear line. This is an adversary Russia marching into Europe. 
Uh, that kind of, I thought it had always been the line we all we all recognize. You don't have to settle everybody's problems around the world. I frankly ran as somebody who thought a lot of the wars we had been engaged in were pretty ill thought out, whether it be the way in which we did Afghanistan, the, the whole mess in Iraq. I frankly almost helped construct the anti-Yemen war movement from the ground up. So I'll hold out my anti-war bona fides against anybody's, but Ukraine is worth saving. Uh, and I think that's the way that most Americans feel about it. Yeah. And there are no American troops on the ground or very few. This is not the same kind of war as the Gulf War. Pretty reasonable investment, right? The Ukrainians are not asking us to fight and die for them. They are asking us to help pay for them to fight and die. And this is frankly saving a lot of American lives later on. Right. And one of the things I want you to talk a little bit about, because it's sort of interesting, is the way the munitions have been made has been part of the Infl Inflation Reduction Act, right? Yeah. Well, listen, th this has been a big ongoing issue. You know, we are so reliant on a small handful of weapons and munitions makers to make what we need and what Ukraine needs that when you have a surge in demand, it's really hard to meet it. This is not like back in World War II when we could turn a hundred different companies overnight into weapons makers. We don't have the ability to do that. So, you know, listen, I am always very wary of massive investments in the defense industrial complex, but it is true that we have seen a big exposure here of our ability to keep up with conflict around the world. And we are going to have to figure out why we have become so very quickly shortchanged on the amount of ammunition that Ukraine needs and make sure that we never get in this situation again. So I don't know that that's a big part of the Inflation Reduction Act, but it is a pretty big effort that's underway generally in Congress to try to make sure that Ukraine has what it needs now and to make sure that in the future we have redundant capabilities for important things like ammunition and artillery shells. Let's go into the Inflation Reduction Act, though, for a minute, because like one of the reasons why Trump was so panicked about the border was because he sees that this inflation was transitory and that the economy, while not every consumer is feeling it, the economy is broadly stabilizing. And so this would mean that the Inflation Act actually reduced inflation, that Inflation was transitory, likely because of the pandemic and the supply chain issues, and that Secretary Yellen and Biden were right. Most all credible economists said we'd be in a recession by yeah. now. Except Paul Krugman. You're right. And, and Joe Biden and his team went to work on the policies necessary to keep us out of a recession. People were deeply skeptical that Joe Biden could do that, but he did. And you saw the job growth rate last month. It is just stunning how many jobs have been created under President Biden more than any other president in their first term. It is true that Donald Trump was hoping that the economy would be in the tank. It is not. It is growing by leaps and bounds. We have structurally low unemployment. Everybody who wants a job out there can get one by and large. But there are also other really important things happening in this economy. One of them that people didn't see happening either is crime coming down by stunningly large percentages. Except in Washington, D.C. Well, but there's always outliers. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but... I got gotcha. you, but I, and listen, that's that's what Republicans will say. Well, there's this, there's this one city where crime is going up. Well, that is true. You know, crime is going up in New Haven and it's going up in Washington, but it's not going up in Hartford and it's not going up in Bridgeport. It's coming way down in Baltimore. But overall, homicides in our cities have come down by 12% since last year. That is the biggest one-year drop in the history of the country. So inflation coming down, crime coming down, jobs going up, growth going up. That's a pretty good record for an incumbent president to run on. And it is true that Republicans said, OK, what do we have left? Like, let's, you know, look under the coconut shells. What do we have to run on? And they, the immigration, all right, the border is a mess. Let's run on that. And we called their bluff. We said, OK, we'll agree to some pretty tough changes of the border if you will, too. <laughs> and they would because they know that they can't run on the economy. They can't run on inflation. They can't run on crime. So they want to run on the border. And the only way they can run on the border is to keep the border a mess. But I think they're not going to get away with it. I think Americans are going to know what just happened, that they refuse to fix the border because they want it to be a mess. 
And when you talk to constituents, you come from a very blue state. Do you feel like they are really seeing what's happening or has Ben Shapiro shaped the narrative so much that and Fox News? I mean, do you feel like they're informed or not? I think there's a couple things happening. One, most, as you know, Molly, most Americans are not plugged in at all. They're just living their lives. They don't know what's happening in Washington and they know what's happening in their lives. And people definitely feel that things are better, but not good enough. People out there are working. Unemployment is really low, but they're still having trouble saving for college and rent is too high. So there's still pain out there in a very, in a very real way. Um, and so we need to sort of do both, right? We've got to take credit for how much better things are, but also be cognizant of the fact that that's going to fall flat with some folks. And then that very you know, siloed media and information infrastructure is also real. There are you know, a bunch of people, even in Connecticut, and in Blue Connecticut, get all their news from conservative news sources and really do believe that Joe Biden has done nothing to help the economy. And that's a hard thing to solve for. But I think people are feeling better. I, I sense that back in Connecticut. And I think increasingly they know that Joe Biden has a lot to do with that. Thank you so much, Senator Murphy. Thanks, Molly. Matt Fuller is the Washington bureau chief at The Daily Beast. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Matt Fuller. How are you, Molly? You know, I'm living the dream. So <laughs> let's talk. I mean that, of course, ironically. You got, I don't fucking know. what. It, it seems to me that the United States House of Representatives, that the Republican who is the Speaker of the House right now, Mike Johnson, does not know how to count discuss. This is a uh, common affliction for uh, Republican speakers. <laughs> He's not the first <laughs> to be struck by this counting problem. He had two votes on Tuesday that failed. The first was this Alejandro Mayorkas, the, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary impeachment. This one is maybe less a uh, problem of counting one, two, three, four, and more that Democrats might have outmaneuvered Johnson a bit. They had votes earlier in the day. And they knew it was going to be close. They knew they were going to lose three Republicans. But it looked like there was going to be some Dem absences. There's a couple of Republican absences. So Al Green was having surgery. Having surgery, a pretty serious situation. And he came back straight from the hospital, Ubered onto the House floor, <laughs> was wheeled in, and he cast what ended up being the deciding vote. And they were deadlocked at 215, 215. They had a fourth Republican vote no just so for procedural purposes that they can bring it back up a little easier. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you start questioning why are you guys really bringing this up when you don't have the votes? I mean, you could bring this up in a week or two when Steve Scalise, the majority leader, he's back. He's he's currently undergoing cancer treatment himself. You could just kind of spring it on people on a, a faster day where it's very clear that Democrats don't have the numbers. They're expressing confidence that they were going to get it done. The truth was they were counting on Democrats to make sure they got it done. And that's just never a gamble you want to make. So they were counting on Democrats to vote to impeach Mayorkas? They were counting on Democrats, a, a few Democrats to not show up. And okay. it, right now we're in a situation where the margin is so close, you basically have three votes to spare. And if there's one extra Dem absence or one extra Republican absence, it can mean quite a bit to the actual margin. I mean, again, they were tied at 215-215 and they lost by one vote. And that one vote was uh, really Al Green or really any other Republican. I mean, you could say Kevin McCarthy resigning or George Santos as he did, he explicitly said, do you, do you miss me yet? That would have also yeah. been the deciding factor. But they were counting on Democrats to not show up, particularly Al Green. And when he did, they were kind of screwed. Right. And that is why Marjorie Taylor Greene gave this really weird speech where she said they're hiding members from us. That was what she was referring to. She was not having a fever dream. <laughs> they were hiding in the Comet ping pong basement or, or uh, manning the right. Jewish space lasers or anything. No, she's right to an extent. Democrats kind of played this one close to their chest. Good for them. Yeah, it, it feels like a move that Nancy Pelosi would have done. Again, you have Democrats show up to the first vote. They get a count of that. They look at the numbers. They say, here's what we can lose. As long as, you know, the same people show up, we're going to be good. And then it's just a, a matter of that Al Green decided, no, you know what? I'm I'm going to I'm going to make it to this vote. And he, for the time being, saved Mayorkas from this impeachment. It's obviously an embarrassing little situation for Mike Johnson, but it is one they will rectify at some point. I, I do expect them to have the numbers and, and get, you know, an impeachment at some point. But it's just adding to the sort of tactical failures of Mike Johnson. I mean, right after that vote, they have Israel aid because Republicans are having these issues 
with their own conference where members are taking down rules. A rule basically just sets up consideration for the bill. It usually determines how long they can debate it, how many amendments, whatever. And they've not been able to <laughs> adopt many rules because it's, it's just a partisan vote. Democrats vote no, Republicans vote yes. When Democrats are in charge, Democrats vote yes, Republicans vote no. And the sacredness of the rule kind of fell apart earlier this year. That happened under Kevin McCarthy, but it's been a constant pain in their side, particularly under Mike Johnson, where these conservatives who are just mad about everything are voting against rules and taking them down and, and basically just taking over the floor. They're blocking consideration of anything. So you had a bunch of Republicans who were saying, I'm not voting for an Israel bill that's not offset with cuts elsewhere. I will vote down the rule. You also have the rules committee, the actual Republicans on the rules committee who determined this, who might not vote it out of the committee. So that's another hard wrinkle there. You have a very MAGA rules committee, which was Kevin McCarthy who set that up. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that was partly to get the speakership. Kevin McCarthy kind of agreed to putting some of these hardline members like Chip Roy on the rules committee. So, you know, now Mike Johnson is living with their, that reality. And he's trying to pass bills to just circumvent the Rules Committee by suspension, which requires two thirds a majority. That number also changes with how many absences and people show up. But let's say it's usually around 280 votes. I think they came up with about 250 for the Israel bill. So they were well short. And that's also going to your point. That's a real counting problem. There's not really many excuses on that one. You can say, you know, Democrats outmaneuvered Republicans on the Mayorkas impeachment. But the fact that the Israel bill failed that that truly is just counting. There's no one hiding members on that one. That's just a true failure of math. But also with this Israel bill, the sort of activists thought the bill was bad and didn't want it to pass either. Part of the problem is Republicans are trying to stake up this position where only Israel passes. And Democrats are on the other side of this saying, well, we're not going to just do Israel only. Maybe Republicans could force their hand on this a bit, but they very strongly want uh, Ukraine and Taiwan as part of that deal with Israel's aid, if you just pass Israel, it's going to it's going to get held up. I mean, if you decide that, you know, we're going to move forward with Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, then it's it's going to go through. And that's the reality that we're we're living in now. You can like it or, or dislike it. There's plenty of members who dislike it. But yeah, I mean, it, it, just passing Israel is basically a gambit to challenge Senate Democrats to to hold that up, vote no, to not take up the vote. This afternoon, the Senate looks like it's fine to pass this sweeping Israel-Ukraine-Taiwan bill. And now, you know, the ball is sort of in Mike Johnson's court. Is he going to allow that larger package to go? Um, the fact that he was unable to pass the Israel-only bill makes it more challenging for him to say no. We have on this episode Chris Murphy, who was also talking to me about procedurally how this would work. I know this is West Wing fanfic, but Right now, Mike Johnson only has a one vote majority. I think he's got closer to three. The actual breakdown is 219 to 212, um, which, again, it matters a great deal if you have an absence or two on either side. But you're looking at a three or four vote majority. Again, it depends on how many members actually show up. That is a very narrow, paper thin majority. And right. anytime you have you're relying on, you know, a few votes. If someone put a motion to vacate on the floor right now, I'm not sure Mike Johnson would survive that. He might survive it with some Democrats not voting. Again, that would lower the threshold for him. But this is a truth that Kevin McCarthy understood. It's a truth that John Boehner, Paul Ryan, they all understood. The second that you rely on Democratic votes to hold your position, you really don't have that position anymore. Every negotiation you go through, Democrats are going to be holding this over your head saying, hey, someone's going to bring up a motion to vacate. And th maybe this time we're not going to care. We're going to let it go through. So as much as Democrats have said, you know, we would protect Mike Johnson if say he put Ukraine funding on the floor and he faced a motion to vacate, which he's had that promise from Marjorie Taylor Greene that if he does do that, she will uh, make a motion to vacate against Mike Johnson. Right. He kind of knows he's living in a very precarious position here. And, you know, yeah, Democrats can say, we'll help you out. We'll vote for we'll vote for you or we just won't vote and we'll lower that threshold. But the reality is, again, like as soon as you are relying on Democratic votes, it's kind of over for you. And again, McCarthy also understood this, which is why he didn't really seek out help from Democrats. And then everyone was always questioning, why didn't he go to Hakeem Jeffries? Why, you know, he's facing this motion to vacate in October over a continuing resolution, just keeping the government lights on for a few weeks. 
We don't know that he didn't, right? I mean, there was some talk that he may have. It's just that Democrats really hated him by that point because he had lied to them so many times. We can't definitively say, yeah, but the reporting has been from McCarthy and from Jeffries that he didn't do that. I guess you never quite know the truth, but we do know no Democrats supported him. You're right. I'm not sure that even if he had asked, Democrats would help him. Yeah, they really hated McCarthy in a way they don't hate Johnson. That might be true right now. I think Mike Johnson at the moment is sort of a curiosity. No one really knew this guy very well. He was kind of a quiet member of Congress. People liked him. You know, from what I understand, people thought that he was honest and not a liar. Yeah, well, he is very quickly developing a reputation as a liar or really as someone who (laughs) kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth. And again, this is just kind of a reality of governing in a very slim Republican majority where you're always trying to appease people. You're always dealing with today's problems today and worrying about tomorrow's problems tomorrow. We published a piece that was basically about the five stages of grief that Mike Johnson is going through in his speakership. And and this is true of every Republican speaker that I've covered for now close to 15 years. You always have this major denial phase. That's the one that really sets up all the other problems because it's always, we're going to get appropriations bills passed. We're going to get our numbers passed. We're going to pass this Israel aid only bill. We're going to force the Democratic Senate to do this. The president's going to sign our bill and they're living in denial. And a lot of the leaders know that they have to go through the motions. They have to sort of illustrate to the conference that they tried. What Republicans really hate is giving in and not even trying. (laughs) You hear that complaint all the time. What it leads to is actually setting up expectations that they can't meet. And Mike Johnson has done that over and over again, whether that's I'm not going to pass a CR again. We're not I'm done with CRs. No more CRs. No more continuing resolutions. And then he has to rely on continuing resolution after continuing resolution. Or we're going to get major spending cuts. You know, I I, want to address this debt. We got to tackle this. And then, of course, what does that do? Well, it sets you up for when it's the same spending bill that was established earlier in the year by Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. And you're adopting those same numbers. Now, Republicans are like, wait a minute, didn't you say we were going to cut those things? I understand the realities of being the speaker, which is that you kind of have to tell people what they want to hear to some extent and give yourself room to do what you have to do. But Mike Johnson has continually stepped on rakes that no one knew existed. (laughs) And uh, Israel aid and trying to pass that by suspension. That's a great example. Mayorkas, you know, impeachment it has to be on this Tuesday. It didn't have to be that Tuesday. He could have brought it up on a day when he knew there was a bunch of Democrats gone and done it that way. So he's finding ways to lose that Kevin McCarthy might have navigated a little bit better. And I think he's at that point now where Republicans are really starting to get frustrated with him. So interesting. So, yeah, you definitely saw a lot of Republicans saying that this was embarrassing and they were frustrated and et cetera, et cetera. Just play this out for me. There's a special election next week for the Santos seat. We don't know where that goes. There's polling that's all over the place. And then there are other specials coming up, too, right? Right. There are. And uh, again, you have Santos seat open, Bill Johnson in Ohio. You're going to have Kevin McCarthy seat. It's going to be a fragile majority. I think Republicans will hold on to it. Of course, I don't know that at any point in this <laughs> in this Congress, they've actually been at full 435. Usually someone dies. I, that's kind of a, a, a weird thing about Congress, too, is in a body of full of old people. There's usually a few deaths. So, yeah, it's going to be a precarious majority. The fact is, and this is one of those things that Republicans don't want to acknowledge, that if you want to actually pass bills that are going to get signed into law, you're going to have to work with Democrats. You're not going to pass bills and and just force it down the Senate's throat and take Biden by the hand and make him sign it. That's always been true. And they've never wanted to acknowledge that. Again, that's that's sort of the denial phase that they're still in. And you hear from Republicans time and time again. It's just so true. The, you know, why won't he lead? Right. I, I was hearing that so much during Obama. Why won't he lead? And they're just saying it now of their Republican speakers. Why won't Mike Johnson lead? Why can't we lead? And it's just the reality of governing that you have to work with the other side. They don't have the votes to just pass messaging bills and force it on the Senate in some way. And I think Mayorkas is actually a good illustration of this. You have a bunch of Republicans who are just sort of reactionary, like they're allergic to saying yes. Okay. Tom McClintock was one of the three real Republican votes to, he, he went against Mayorkas. That guy, it, there's nothing that says to me, oh, you know, he, he's a principled man on this and he's going to, you know, vote against it because of this reason. He's just someone who likes to say no. All right. And Ken Buck is a sort of principled guy. 
who's, you know, in the last stage of his congressional career and is like thinking about a lot of things and wondering if this was the right thing or that was the wrong thing, he's prone to say no too. And then you have Mike Gallagher, who is one of the more moderate guys who's basically saying, this is terrible precedent, guys. Like, can't you see that Democrats are just going to turn around and start impeaching our guys? Those are all good arguments. The reality is when you have a Republican majority full of people who love to say no, who are actually incentivized by their their party base to say no, you're going to have people who say no. And relying on when it comes down to, uh, we need everyone to say yes. That's a really tough proposition. And I think, you know, Mike Johnson has learned that very quickly. Well, it also seems like the MAGA wing is able to intimidate people to get what they want, but the MAGA wing is not very organized. So, like, if the MAGA wing had wanted Mayorkas impeached, I mean, they're the closest Republicans have to a vote whipping organization, right? Yeah, and they are. They killed that border bill. Well, that that was very quick. And, and again, that was kind of a systemic opposition because you know, basically Donald Trump said, I don't want to give Biden a political win. And as amazing of a explanation as it is, Republicans bought it. And we're basically repeating it on Capitol Hill saying right. we can't give him a political win, which is, you know, again, like they're out there yelling about the crisis at the border. And here's a bipartisan bill addressing that crisis. And you're saying, I don't want to take half a loaf. I don't want to take a step toward a solution. I want to preserve this vote for for my president, Donald Trump. But Mayorkas, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. The MAGA wing was, you know, forceful that we need to impeach this guy. This is part of us addressing the, the crisis of the war, even though it, it wouldn't address anything. The Senate's not going to actually uphold this impeachment and prosecute him in the Senate with guys like Clay Higgins and whatnot. Right. Um, that's not going to happen. But yeah, they're they're trying to get in line. They're trying to go after guys like Mike Gallagher. You know, this Trump operative, Alex Brusowitz, announced yesterday he's like, forming an exploratory committee to primary Mike Gallagher. Does he even live in Wisconsin? Alex Brusowitz is from Ripon, Wisconsin, with the oh, good supposed him. birthplace of the GOP. It is outside of the district, but it's not far outside of it. I think it's about 30 minutes outside the district. Well, this is pretty close. Yeah, it's close enough for him to mount a primary campaign to some extent. I don't know that he'll he'll eventually run. I don't know that he would win. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't. But I think the message is clear that if you cross the MAGA crowd, we will come after you. There will be repercussions. And they are trying to convey that message. Thank you so much, Matt Fuller. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Hi, uh, Junk Fast. Unfortunately, we have to talk about Curtis Sliwa, a man who is known as living in a 320 square foot studio apartment with 15 cats and wearing a costume while he harasses people on the streets of New York in a racist way. What are you seeing here? <laughs> I feel like you have an opinion here. <laughs> I feel like I've hated this guy for three or four decades. Yeah, I was actually going to say that because we're both New York City people. We can attest that we both have hated Curtis Sliwa. I've hated him as long as I've hated Rudy Giuliani. I mean, he's very much of that vintage. Curtis Sliwa is trying to stage a comeback, obsessed with the refugees coming over the border. Group found someone, claimed that they were a refugee. Turned out the guy, he was not illegal. Again, illegal is, you know, a horrible word. But he was, in fact, just a guy from the Bronx who spoke Spanish Curtis Sliwa and his people in ridiculous red beanies all beat him up. It was on Sean Hannity's show. It was, in fact, not taken down. It is still up from the Washington Examiner on uh, X. And so this stupid racist fuckery is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. 
You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.